Seeing these bells up here reminds me of when I was a little boy. My twin brother and I were the ages of these little kids, and we would have concerts like this. And uh, at our church, they would give us not only bells like this, but there were wooden blocks and wooden sticks that we could make noise with. I'm sure they gave the Hewlett twins something very soft instead of very hard because we tended to get into it. So either they, they gave us soft things to play or they put us at the ends so that we weren't together. But it was also on this day, the, the Sunday before Christmas, that uh, before Sunday school let out, uh, all of the, the teachers had come together on Saturday and put together a little clear plastic bag, and in it was a walnut, as if kids can open walnuts, right? Uh, a couple little hard pieces of candy. Uh, some of you are shaking your hands. You've been there, your head. And, and an, either an orange or an apple. That normally the apple tasted horrible. But every year, that was the... How many of you got gifts like that in your Sunday school? I think it's written in the Bible somewhere, in Second Hezekiah or something, that that's what you give kids the Sunday before. No, there's not a Hezekiah. I'm just kidding. So good times. Well, I'd invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to be reading the last part of 1 and the first part of 2. The phrase, desperate times calls for desperate desperate measures, is on display during this, uh, in these stories that I'm just about to read in Mark 1 and 2. In this first section, we see two desperate men in dire straits coming to Jesus for help. They were scandalous at the time because for a good Jew to willingly touch a man who has leprosy or to tear open a a good roof of a house so desperate for healing, it was absolutely unheard of. We know from our own lives that we are often driven to God by trouble, by crisis, or by desperation. Many of the Psalms are written by David or someone else who were desperate for God's help. The last three scandals were things that Jesus did that set the priests and professional religious people on fire. We see them in 2, 3, and 4 in Mark. He actually dared to forgive sins. He didn't fast the way that they thought he should fast. He dared to pull grain off the stalk to fill his tummy on the Sabbath. We'll get to those stories a little bit later. That's going to take several sermons to to deal with those scandals. Mark puts all of these stories together for us to see a new picture of Jesus. I call it the scandals of genuine ministry. When I see stories put together like this, I wonder what the author was trying to say to us. Sometimes we look at one little story separate when we really should be looking at multiple stories that the authors put together to prove one point or to show us a characteristic of God. In the first story, we see a scandal of healing. It's in chapter 1, verses 4 through 42. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. This actually was a very unique request and miracle that I confess has really informed my understanding of prayer and healing. The story in Mark 1, 40 through 42 is in the context of two men needing healing from very severe physical illnesses. One man was a leper, an outcast of society, and the other man had to depend on others to transport him 
anywhere because he was paralyzed. Living with a physical therapy in today's culture can be a real trial and difficulty. Many of you have dealt or are dealing with handicaps every single day, and it's a challenge. But I can tell you, living in ancient times with a disability was much more challenging. You often were a social outcast. Sometimes you couldn't even worship in the temple because you weren't pure enough, perfect enough, clean enough. You had to beg for food because no one would employ you. If you were a leper, you would have to call out, unclean, unclean, anytime someone came close to you. Sometimes, as a leper, you were required to wear special clothing so that people could see, oh, you're a leper, I can't touch you. Sometimes, as a leper, you were required to wear bells on you so that if you were around the corner, somebody would hear you coming and they would run the other way. Can you imagine that type of life? Somebody wrote, patients with leprosy experienced disfigurement of the skin and bones, twisting of the limbs and curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. Facial changes including, include thickening of the outer ear and a collapse of the nose. So that is who came to Jesus. His desperation was clear. The passage tells us that he was imploring Jesus and kneeling down before him. I, I really don't think that his kneeling down primarily, he, he was kneeling down primarily because of worship, but more so out of his desperate need to be healed, Jesus. To be desperate means to have little or no hope. It was, it has the perspective that everything is wrong and nothing will improve it. He was a leper and his hope for any type of healing or any type of normal life or any type of worship life. It was only going to get worse the rest of his life. But recently he had heard reports of a prophet like no other had been healing people in his area of the northern Sea of Galilee area. He had heard rumors. He, he had heard that some had been healed. He might have seen the blind man that he was good friends with running down the street with all sight. He might have even seen his old friends who joined him begging, who couldn't walk before. Now they were laughing and running in health again. Can you imagine being a leper knowing that the blind friend can now see and the paralyzed friend of his is now running. And now he was desperate. He had come to the end. All his hope now was in the new teacher. And so he comes to Jesus, imploring begging down on his knees, if you are willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. And then we hear Jesus saying to him these most wonderful words to his ears, I am willing. <laughs> can you imagine how he heard that? I am willing. I think you have observed in my ministry that God is in the healing business, right? Darla and I have personally experienced many healing stories with us, our boys. We've watched it happen right here in these altars or altars of other churches that we have pastored. In fact, God actually invites us to pray for healing doesn't he? In James, he tells us that if anyone is ill, they should call the elders together using 
the oil that represents the Holy Spirit, which is right here on our communion table, James said that they should pray for healing. We practice that almost every Sunday. But I want you to see something very clear in this interaction Jesus had with the man who has leprosy. But first, let me tell you a story of a pastor, and he was writing about uh, 50 years ago. He said, years ago, a young man in his, con in his congregation came up to him. He had become very interested in the healing power of God and was involved in a movement which was teaching that healing is provided by God for every physical ailment we believers have. That is wrong not to be, that it is wrong not to be well and that we do not have to ask God whether he wants to heal us or not. That's what the young man believed. The young man told me, the pastor, that it is a lack of faith to pray if it be your will, will heal me. He said we should claim our healing and was very definite about it. The pastor said, I remember pointing out this incident that we just read in the scripture, that the leper came to Jesus and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus did not rebuke him or tell him he had approached him in a wrong way or that he thought his claim or he ought to claim his healing. In fact, you never find this idea in the scripture. Jesus said, I am willing to be healed. I think this indicates something of an awareness on the leper's part of a divine purpose there may have been in this affliction. It may perhaps be difficult for some of us to handle this concept, but the scriptures are very clear that sometimes God wills us to be ill. It's not that this is the expression of his ultimate desire for us. Certainly not. But that given the circumstances in which we now live and we live in a fallen humanity, there are times when God wills for his children to pass through the valley of the shadow of death or through the valley of illnesses. You see, numerous there are numerous illustrations in the scripture of that of this job was allowed to go through loss and physical pain and financial pain why for the purpose of learning a certain lesson that god had prepared for him in the new testament we see paul came before the lord and asked three different times for the removal of a physical thorn in the flesh we really don't know what that is and finally the answer came in second corinthians 12 the script, God said, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. He wasn't healed. But God said, my grace will be sufficient for you. And Paul understood that God wanted him to put up with it. Learn how, how to handle it by the grace of God. So it's clear that it, it's... Not the teaching of Scripture that everybody must be healed, just claim it. That's not scriptural. This leopard is a case in point. Evidently, he sensed some purpose in this, and when he said, if you will, if you're willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. He didn't mean if you are in a good mood at the present, Jesus. He meant rather if it is not out of line with the purpose of God, if it is not violating some cosmic divine program God is working out, then would you please make me clean? The leper didn't know, but the apostle John later would write in one of his letters something that totally agreed with his request to Jesus. John later wrote in one of his epistles, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we 
asked of him. If we ask according to what he wills, then he hears us. And if he hears us, then we will be given what we originally asked for. Now, the problem that most of us have is that we often don't spend enough time to find out what the heart of God is. We ask for what we want and are surprised because God won't give it to us. Darla and I have been trying to spend more time here of late in, pray, in prayer asking God what he wants us to pray for in the first place. God actually loves it when his children ask what would please him. We would love it if our, our own children came to us and asked us, Mom, Dad, how can I help you today? Wouldn't that be amazing? Refreshing, right? Whoa. But put yourself in God's place. Wouldn't it be amazing if his children came to him and say, Lord, I, I'm available for you today. What is it that you would like for me to pray for? How can I assist you today? It seems that the leper has learned this. He said, if you are willing, will you heal me? And the answer of Jesus was very positive. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. The scripture says instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. That I will is like a green light from God. It says the time has come for the healing to occur. Whatever purpose the leprosy may have served, it's now been accomplished and the time was come to set it aside. I am willing, Jesus said, now be healed. What is it that we learn about the characteristics, the character of God here? I think it's this. Jesus responds to our prayer out of the perspective of the big picture. You remember we spent 31 weeks preaching and studying through the entire Bible. And what did we talk about there's this big picture that God is looking at, and we're only looking at a very small picture. The big picture is God doing this, looking at all the details, the before and the after, and how can, how can he learn from this? Looking at the big picture, Jesus is now responding to our prayer out of the perspective of the big picture. We have such short-sighted perspective. Sometimes we ask God for things that aren't the best for us. Anybody want to raise your hand here? Both of my hands are up. Sometimes we ask for hot dogs when God has a porterhouse, a, a porterhouse steak that he really wants to give us. Yet we're begging God for that cheap $1 hot dog that's horrible. But it fills our immediate stomachs. And God's just like shaking his head going, no, I've got something better. Have you thought about asking me for a steak? So the leper said, if you are willing to heal me, Jesus, knowing the big picture of the man, said, yes, I am willing to be healed. Jesus is seeing the big picture. There's also the scandal of forgiving we see in the first part of chapter 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors, there was no more room, even outside the door. 
While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, go home. The man jumped up and he grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. In the description of Jesus' encounter with the paralyzed man, we find some very resourceful friends or family members, very committed. There were four men carrying him in and When they see that the house is completely surrounded by people, they're desperate. They they know this man must get close to Jesus. So they get creative. They presumably went up the steps or ladder to the roof and then begin to calculate where Jesus was, in what room, and they begin to tear open the roof. We don't know if they had to remove an awning like many houses might have had to protect and give shade or whether it was tiles or straw or whatever mud, whatever it was back then. They just began to tear open a hole and begin to recognize that right here is where they could get him closest to Jesus. Regardless of the details, they were intent on making sure their friend was healed by Jesus. Now Mark makes two interesting and surprising comments about Jesus' response to their action. First, Jesus notices their faith through their actions. Notice that the friends who were bringing him to Jesus put action to their faith. They did the hard thing. They persevered. They worked hard in order for their friend to have a chance to be healed. Now, I'm not talking about a works-based theology here. God doesn't require us to do good things to receive good responses from him, not at all. But I am talking about a theology of participation, a theology of availability, a theology of willingness to help answer the prayer. They were not willing just to cry out in prayer, Jesus, heal our friend. But they were willing to go to work to do everything possible to bring their friend closer to Jesus. I wonder what would happen if we not only prayed, but we said, Lord, I am willing to do whatever I need to have, whatever you need me to do to help answer this prayer. What would happen if we made ourselves available, that we would provide our gifts, our time, our money, whatever it was, so that God's will could be accomplished in fulfilling that prayer? Now, just a side note, you'll, you'll see later that Jesus finally heals him. I'm not going to skip over the forgiveness part. That's really important, but I want you to notice something. What kind of faith was required by the ill person to be healed? Did he have great faith? Did he have enduring faith? Did he have mature faith? Actually, the paralyzed man didn't say a single word in the entire story. 
He was healed because of the faith of his friends, not his own faith. Later in the book of Mark, I'll preach about three different stories that Mark puts together. And we're going to look at the types of faith that were, that were present in those healing stories. One was healed because, and there was no faith present. One was healed just with simple, immature faith. And another was healed because of a desperate faith. Don't let the evil one lie to you that you don't have enough faith to see a certain prayer answered. Or you don't have the right words. Or you don't have, you don't pray enough. Or you don't pray like that one lady in your church. Or you don't have the experience. You're not, you don't know enough good, good scripture to quote to Jesus. This story illustrates that God will heal when and if he wants. It has nothing to do. Nothing to do with works at all. But he wants to see that we are willing to be active in answering our own prayer. As, as amazed as we are, and certainly they were, at the healing of a man lowered from the roof, I believe the primary point that Mark was trying to make was something else. The second thing that Mark wants us to see is that he tells the paralytic his sins were forgiven. That's the biggest part of the story. Once the paralyzed man was lowered, Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. It, it was actually the first thing that was done. It wasn't the healing of his legs. It was the healing of his soul. One wonders why he would say that to a man who obviously is there to be healed so he can walk. It may have been because Jesus wanted to deal with the in incorrect interpretation that during that day that disability meant that he or his parents had sinned. That was the common misconception in that culture. Or it could have been that Jesus was emphasizing that the most important need that he or any of us have was not the healing, not a physical healing but forgiveness, a spiritual healing. And that he had the divine authority to do so, to forgive sins. Seems to be the point of this little confrontation that he has with the scribes who were there. They thought certain things in their hearts that the man was committing blasphemy by declaring that the paralyzed man's sins were forgiven. But Jesus immediately knew what they were thinking in their hearts. It's evident from the words of Jesus that this paralyzed man, the, the paralysis came, was caused by some type of moral difficulty, the way the, the, the author wrote it. it. Notice that he doesn't touch the, the physical at first. He goes right to the heart of the problem. He says, your sins are forgiven. In fact, Matthew, whenever he's writing this story, he says, son, uh, he says that Jesus says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. It indicates that this paralysis came from what doctors sometimes call emotionally induced diseases or illnesses. Doctors often say that 50% of all illnesses are are, are, that they treat are emotionally caused. Not that they're not genuine. The people really are ill that have them, but they are caused by often some type of emotional stress. You've been around people that have a bitter spirit or a lack of, of forgiveness, and maybe they're harboring a grudge against somebody, and, and over time you'll see the physical ramifications of living a life like that. You've probably heard of people who have sores in their stomach, ulcers that are often emotionally induced. Somebody said that ulcers are caused not, by, uh, about, uh, not from what you eat, but what is eating you. 
guilt affects us physically. And perhaps this man had done injury to someone or bore a heavy burden of guilt and was unable to forgive himself, and now he's dealing with the illnesses, the ramifications of that life. And Jesus, knowing that this man was paralyzed because of some type of moral problem, immediately went to the heart of the matter. He touched him and said, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, if he had simply healed the paralysis without forgiven or dealt with the emotional or moral challenge, the paralysis would have returned sooner or later. But our Lord went to the heart of the matter and forgave this man's sins so that the healing he received would last and the paralysis never would return. This was a problem to the scribe sitting nearby. They were puzzled. And Jesus understood that. Notice how Mark puts it. These scribes were questioning in their hearts, he calls it. They didn't say anything. They didn't even want, they didn't even talk amongst themselves. But Jesus read their hearts, their minds. He knew in his spirit that they questioned within themselves. And you can imagine the startled look on their faces when Jesus turned to them and said, Why are you fellows thinking that way? I know what you're thinking. Our Lord knew what was going on in the minds of the scribes, and so he proposed to them a test. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? He knew it was much easier to heal a body. A physician could do that, but he said, which is easier Which is easier to say? Obviously, any charlatan, any religious racketeer can say to a man, your sins are forgiven. And no one could prove whether it happened or not. So that's easier to say. Our Lord is saying to these men, you question my ability to forgive sins. I'm going to demonstrate to you that I not only have the power to forgive sins, but the power to heal as well which is easier to do, but it's harder to say because you can verify the healing. And turning to the paralyzed man, he said, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And the man obeyed, instantly healed. Before their eyes, he walked out of the house and all the people except the scribes, rejoiced and gave glory to God, saying, we never have ever seen anything like this. What amazed them? What was it that amazed them? Not merely the healing. They had seen healing miracles before. What amazed them? was Jesus' understanding of the problem of the human nature. So what is it that we learn about the character of Jesus in the story? Jesus responds to our prayer out of the perspective of the big picture. And I know you're saying, but pastor, wait a minute, you just said that about the last story. You can't use the same point on two, yes I can, because it's true. Jesus responds to our prayer out of the perspective of the big picture. Jesus knew so much better. He knew all of the other issues so much better than they did. The friends and paralyzed man wanted to be healed. The religious leaders wanted theological order. Jesus knew so much better than all of them. So he forgave first, and then he healed. He knew the person's physical challenge was so much more of a minor point than his spiritual need. So let me ask you, what are you bringing to Jesus right now? I'll give you time to think about it. What are you bringing to Jesus in your prayer time right now? 
Are you trusting your own perspective about it? Are you asking God to give you his best instead of what you think is the best? Are you willing to be used of God to answer your own prayer? My prayer for you and God's expectation is for you to pray not only with desperation, but that you would seek to pray that his will would be done before your own will is done. Would you please stand? What was it that Mark wanted us to see in in this and several other healing stories that will come later in this gospel. We've been talking about how it was that Jesus saw a much bigger perspective than the people did. I'm glad that he does. There have been times that I only had the faith to pray for a Band-Aid and not for the healing. And what I found out was that he had something bigger, better, and finer than I could ever imagine if I would have only asked him. It's a good reason for us to always ask God what it is that would bring him the greatest amount of glory in the situation. And then pray for that. God, what is it that you want me to pray for specifically? And then wait and listen. The other thing that we have to notice in both these stories, and to be honest, in all of the healing stories, we see a level of desperation. The man with leprosy, desperate. The friends with a paralyzed man, they were desperate. And later on, we'll see Jairus's daughter who was about to die and Jairus was desperate for Jesus to come to his house. The man who was possessed, he was desperate to get rid of these demons. The blind man was desperate to see in Mark chapter 5 the woman with an issue of blood had given everything that she owned for healing. And this was the last option. Can I say desperation is not wrong? But it can get us focused on the immediate relief. It can sometimes get us focused on the quick answer, the logical conclusion. But what if God wasn't best glorified in the immediate relief? Perhaps God has some lessons that can only be learned with a lengthy time of prayer, of faithing it through. What if God didn't want to give the logical conclusion? Perhaps he wanted to give the illogical conclusion. Last week I was in prayer. I had been told some news that made me immediately think, oh no. This is a, is a way bigger task that might be harder for God to fix. That was my immediate response. But then immediately I felt God saying to me, Am I not the God of David and Goliath? Am I not the God of Daniel in the lion's den? Am I not the God of the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace turned up seven times? 
times. And I had to smile to myself and shake my head because I was praying for hot dogs. God wanted me to have a stomach. Silly me. God's not worried about what we worry about. He's looking at a totally different perspective of the situation than we are. He's thinking through what it is that would best glorify himself in the end. And he's planning what the best lesson is for us in the whole situation. So, is it wrong to come to God with desperation? Absolutely not. We're humans. We have needs. We have pain. We have challenges and brokenness. But God has the big picture in mind. He's looking at all the details. He's looking at all of the challenges. And he's deciding what is the absolute best outcome for you and for him. And because of that, our best approach to God is this. Ask him what his will for you is and then agree with him on his desire. And when we do, we fulfill what John wrote. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for. It's as simple as that. We can have confidence that if we ask according to his will, that he hears us. And when he hears us praying for what he has already willed, we know that we will receive it. And when I hear that, my prayer must first and always be, God, help me to pray your will be done. The love of God is greater far than time or pain.
Heavenly Father, we are often short-sighted and we tend to lose opportunities for you to teach us your best. We're all humans here and we confess we've all done it. We have budgeted for you. We've planned things out for you. We've said, Lord, if you do this, this, and this in this order, it will be the best. <laughs> and you just smile. <laughs> We keep your calendar too often. We try to keep your bank account straight. We try to move resources in ways that seem logical to us. But you've got a bigger picture. You look at the 360. You look at the past, present, and future. You look at others. And you know what is best. So, Father, this morning we are all thinking through some of the challenges that we are living with and we have been praying. And we recognize that even now we are probably saying that very same thing. And we're praying with our perspective and not yours. And we confess, Father, that we desperately need your big picture we need you to change our hearts and our minds change our perspective so that we can pray as the man with leprosy prayed Lord if you are willing if it is your will if you would be honored in the best way if it doesn't disagree with the divine picture that you've already painted for my life if so, and if you're willing, would you heal me? Would you heal my parents? Would you provide the resource? Would you give me 
that job, would you fill in the blank? And Father, we just want you to know that we love you and we are so looking forward to stepping into the Christmas holidays with our families coming from all over the state and even the United States and we are so excited about representing you. Lord, we do pray that our discussion and our laughters and our games and our table talk, all of it, our families will recognize that we love you more than anything and that we desire to serve you with our hearts and our souls and our minds and that we know that Christmas is all about you. In Jesus' name. Would you receive this benediction? Paul tells the believers in Romans in his letter a benediction that I give to you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may Overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace, for he's already gone before you. You're dismissed.